Good morning, church. Good morning. Nice. I guess uh, we get the June we never got. Uh, so summer's here. Welcome to fall. Uh, the Lord decided to reverse seasons on you. So, uh, Bird and Cage, you guys can head out. See you guys uh, heading out. Uh, always great to be with you. I always say if you're new visiting, just thrilled that you're here. Uh, glad that you get to just join us as we worship Jesus. Um, that's uh, very simply what this is. So, uh, this is a worship service where we worship uh, one God who exists in three distinct persons. And uh, we've got God the Father, we've got God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're not different gods, they're one God, and yet He manifests Himself and, and nourishes us and ministers to us through all three profound persons that are distinct. And so um, we're just thrilled that we get to partake in that, get to enjoy that. And Jesus, the Son of God, is really the the cornerstone to everything. And so uh, he's the name you're going to hear more than any other name. He's the name you're going to sing more than any other name. He is the name you're going to hear preached more than any other name because he's really the reason that we can find fullness of life and joy in this life uh, and in the life to come. And so uh, we've been in a book that's really um, been so practically addressing that issue, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the literature portion of your Bible. We're going to actually land the plane uh, today. It's been an awesome study with you guys to uh, walk through this book uh, of vanity. Uh, some of you guys in a lot of the emails have been, man, I'm just, I just feel so depressed like uh, every week. I'm like, yeah, but that's to get you the place of joy in Christ. So um, I hope you keep hearing the end, right? Because uh, if you only get the beginning, yeah, you're going to leave with your head down and go crash your car. So uh, we want to always hear and remember that Jesus Christ is the answer to the vanity, to the futility of this life. He's the one that lifts our eyes beyond here and will one day seat us with himself there in its fullness. That is something that we long for. Now, if you've been living and breathing, uh, you guys are well aware that this life is futile. Um, There is deep vanity. There is deep fracture um, uh, just across the landscape. Uh, Tragedy after tragedy uh, we seem to experience. So, Let's ask God for help this morning, that he would help uh, bring about life in his son, Jesus Christ, not just in the life to come, but today, and help us to see the world the way he wants us to see it, Um, especially with just the disasters that are ensuing, uh, the need that is needed. Uh, The gospel needs to be put on display ever more brightly uh, than if any time, than such a season is now. So uh, would you bow your heads with me as we, we end in Ecclesiastes, ask God for help. Also ask God to do uh, the illuminating work of his Holy Spirit, which is part of our Trinitarian God. The Holy Spirit of God must show up and act for you to know or understand anything. So uh, let's take a moment with him, whether you come in here with burdens, with anxieties, with uh, concerns, with distractions from this week. Understand that there is a real, literal adversary with his dominion that is dark and wants to cloud out truth, wants to hinder you from seeing the light and love of Jesus Christ, would you ask God who rules and reigns and holds even the darkness in full authority and power to give you understanding, to give you life, to give you Jesus? Ask him to help you to wade through the fog this morning. Ask him to increase your heart for the things that break his heart. Ask him to increase urgency in you if you're feeling apathetic. God, we're we're always in need. God, I, I believe that if we're aware of anything and have our eyes open to the reality of life and assess ourselves honestly in light of eternity, we realize that we are in deep, urgent need 
of security, of worth, of something outside of this world, of something over the sun, Solomon says, which is found in you and you alone. Would you drive our hearts there, drive our minds there? Father, would you help the, the thousands upon thousands who have been devastated by disaster? In Dominican Republic, in Puerto Rico, in Florida, in Texas, and Mexico, and India, and China, and the places where God, we are seeing and experiencing the fracture, the groanings of this world even. Your word says, longing to be made new. Father, with the gospel we put on display, not just as your people go on offense into the darkness, but God, as Lord, your hands and feet continue to minister to those and point people to a better path of a better way. God, continue to free us from the futility and vanity that is this life apart from you. Give us joy this morning in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Don't have a Bible. Bible's in the back. Love for you to, to grab one. And uh, if you're looking for seats, I don't know where to get them. So you can sit on the stage, I guess. Um, I'm sorry that we're, that we're moving uh, out of that room. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Here, here's what he's going to write. And I want to share something that's, that's very encouraging to me um, that actually uh, just happened Thursday. Thursday I was uh, going through my files. Sometimes I'll just scale through old files that I have on my computer that were in there when we, when we founded Church at Bergen. And um, it was interesting. I came across an audio clip. Now, now Back in the day, three, three and a half years ago, back in the day, we, we would record just using like a phone. Uh, so someone had their phone and they were recording our vision meeting for what we believed God was asking us to do and landing us in Paramus. And uh, we were about eight months in as a church, maybe 50 people, 60 people were there. And so you can hear everybody else talking, right? So you can hear me kind of laying the vision out, but then you can hear everybody else kind of uh, just like talking and blabbing. Now that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? So now I get to hear what everybody thinks and says, right? Uh, I wish I had that now, right? So on the audio, I could actually uh, hear your, your mind and hear what you have to say. And so as I was wrapping up, just sharing this bold vision of God to be in the Paramus area and uh, what we believed he was doing and moving, um, I, I, I heard off to the side of the, in, the, in the audio, someone go, that's crazy, right? <laughs> uh, that's just crazy, right? They just like kept saying it. I thought that was so funny. Well, well, yet it is crazy. And, and I think we got to remember that, that God wants to do things. God wants to work in your life. God wants to, you experience more of him that makes you actually say that's not rational. That doesn't make sense. God has to be the explanation of what I'm experiencing, of what I'm seeing. And one of the things that that reminded me of was I remember going home that night praying a very specific prayer. Now, it was a prayer I had been praying since before we even, our family even moved up this way, but it, 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 I recall that I went back to our home that night and I prayed it again, and it was very explicitly and clearly God continued to form a people that look like heaven, right, where there are tribes, tongues, nations, ethnicities all coming together that it doesn't really make sense that they're sitting in the same room hearing this one message under one God with one spirit because, man, you're going to hate heaven if you don't like that, right? So I said, man, that's why Paramus was so attractive to us with it being a melting pot of diversity. And listen, I'm telling you, if you just look left and right in this room, you're literally an answer to prayer, like, I want you to know that, that God is actually doing that here, and that is something to celebrate. I don't think we celebrate that enough. I think we just take for granted the things and the ways in which God works, and we don't take time to pause and say, hey, God is profoundly moving. God is doing something. God is answering the prayers of three years ago, and even before we even moved here, informing a people that don't look like each other. 
Now that's necessary because as we get into the word, as we get into the text of scripture, the scripture needs to conform us to God and not to people. Right, Not to our tribes, not to who we look like, but conform us to the God of the universe who says, hey, one day we're all going to be with me and I'm going to rule and reign over a people who will worship and rejoice in the name and renown of Jesus Christ. So listen, um, this is not a church where you're going to be comfortable. Like This is not a place where we're going to be happy just looking like each other, trying to pave a path where we're all kind of cute in our own corner. We want as much as possible our paths to cross and mix for the glory and renown of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that prayer is continuing to be being prayed, not just at, in my heart, but in the hearts of many who sit next to you. So let's continue to pray as we look at Ecclesiastes, as we look at the vanity of life, as we look at the futility of this world that God wants us to see so far beyond our world. So far beyond your house, he actually wants you to look in your neighbor's yard, right? He wants your fence to be lower, your driveway to be shorter, and your conversations to be longer, right? Because of what's at stake. He's going to show us what's at stake right here. Um, And here's what he's wrapping up with. He's going to remind us that everyone, every one of us, so you can lie or ignore this or suppress this, every one of us is trying to find meaning, stuff meaning, search for the meaning of life. So uh, no one can escape that. No matter who you are, Christian or non-Christian, atheist or believer in a God, you are searching for meaning, searching for significance. You are wanting to know why am I here? Why does this life exist? And some of us tend to grab the closest answer on the bottom shelf by going, well, I don't know, we're here to be happy. Well, well how does that work when tragedy strikes? Well, we said two weeks ago that if you base your life on a decision to follow Jesus and not a life of discipleship in following Jesus, then every time you hit trial, suffering, plight, or pain, you're going to be more disillusioned than devoted to him. Um, some of us believe that, well, uh, when we hit hard times, then, then that's just for us to find our own answer and find our way out of that. And Solomon has been repeatedly ignoring and dismantling the vain ways that we pursue meaning outside of God, the creator, and try to push him out of his own, out of his own creation and universe. So here we're going to see, he's going to show us that if you don't know where you're going and the purpose of your life is, then you don't know how to live your life. But thank God we do know how to live our life and we do know where meaning is found. So here he's going to get to the bottom line, how to keep life aligned with your creator, how to live life the way it's meant to be wired. Verse 9, he says this, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. I love it. Solomon's going, hey, as I land the plane, as I give you my final thought, as I close out everything, let me just remind you who's writing this thing. Okay? Let me remind you of my wealth, of my wisdom, of the life that I lived. Okay? I, I tested and tried and chased everything under the sun apart from the God over the sun and found it to be vanity, found it to be meaningless. He said this over and over and over. He goes, man, in fact, I devoted my whole life to discovering the meaning of life. I read every book, checked every historian, read every philosopher, spent all my money. I devoted my life to finding what is the meaning of being alive. So if there's anybody to listen to, you might want to listen to me. And he says, I've been writing with logical clarity. I've been speaking to every man's idols, fame, sex, fortune, wisdom, career, work. I've been, I've been showing you how those are empty gods. I've been writing with, with sense, right? First Kings 4 will tell you that Solomon heard so many wise sayings of the course of his life He arranges them here in such a way, but he could actually quote over 3,000 proverbs. 
How's that for scripture memory? Right? I mean, 3,000 Proverbs. He's going, man, I recall a lot, and yet I'm organizing it in such a way, and I've laid it before you in a way that's inescapable. So I dare you to assess your life honestly in light of reality and eternity. That's what he's been saying. That's what he's been showing. He also says here, I wrote honestly and truthfully, right? Has Solomon not been brutally honest? <laughs> some of the, for some of you, that's the reason you're so discouraged. Because he has been brutally honest with you. Uh, Augustine said this, the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just let it loose and it will defend itself. That's what Solomon's been doing. Let's just lay the truth out for you. He has never held back from the reality of life under the sun. He's never held back from the reality of death, the, light of the, the reality of eternity, the reality of meaning, the reality of our souls longing for something to sit on the mantle of our hearts and bring about ease and bring about satisfaction, right? We're all chasing that. We've all wanted that. So he's not letting us escape that. Listen, we say all the time here, we don't believe we have to defend the truth. <laughs> like you don't have to fear the truth. Like, just, let's just lay it out, let the chips fall, and then let the truth do its own work. Man, you don't have to fear culture. Like, you don't have to fear what the majority says. Right? You just lay the truth out, follow the truth, and let it do its own work. Let your soul be led to life, led to clear pasture, led to water by simply acknowledging and walking in the truth. The point here is we're to trust what Solomon's conclusion is. He wants you to be able to trust it. He wants you to know, hey, you can trust the thing I'm about to say. Now, so this is where you're leaning in, all right? Listen, this is not the architect teaching an NBA player how to play better basketball, right? This is Michael Jordan saying, hey, here's what I've learned in my career. I'm the best in the game here. Here's how you shoot. Here's how you dribble. Here's how you know the whole framework for how the NBA and how basketball is meant to be played and experienced. This is the God of the universe, the creator God saying, this is how life is to be wired. This is the whole duty of man. This is why you exist. This is why you are alive. And he gives us eternal truths that are timely because really they're timeless. Look what he says in verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. A goad, right, was a sharp stick that a shepherd used to use to kind of uh, prod a stubborn sheep. Uh, so if it was headed somewhere dangerous, it would stab it in the rib or kind of poke it in the bottom. Right, this is, he's saying, man, this is what truth does. This is what these sayings do. And listen, they're not just sayings from some skeptical philosopher. They're from the very creator God, the inerrant, infallible, inspired words of God, having me write these things to you so you would dig your well deep in the truth and know you can walk in these truths and you'll find fullness of life. So he's been doing this, right? Every time you think life doesn't really matter, I'm invincible, he's stabbed you in the side and gone, hold on, no, death is coming, death is imminent, it's hard charging 100% and you're all going to face the creator God, right? Every time your heart's been tempted to follow after an idol or a satisfaction in wealth or career or sex or fame or image or work or, or greed or whatever it is, he gently stabs you in the ribs, reminding you of how empty that God is. That's what he's been doing. These wise words are like goads. They, they protect you. And here's the thing. It might be a little painful, but it saves you from the greatest pain. That's what's so beautiful about God and about his commands, right? Is the commands of God, yeah, it's like anesthesia, the needle. You're like, ah, but eventually it leads you and saves you from the worst pain. He's trying to lead you and protect you. And sometimes as we've been sitting under the word, I love it. It's been like a goad where you go, oh, that, 
and you get defensive, right? God, don't do that. Don't say that. And he's like, hold on. I love you. Get away from that, that fence. There's a cliff. Don't eat that. That's stupid. Right? Don't be a dumb sheep. And he's all the while trying to direct you to a path where you are finding life, where he is leading you away from destruction. These wise words, the truth is like goads. Isn't that beautiful? A little bit of pain is a gift from God saving us from the greatest pain, which is why he says these truths are to be nailed into our hearts and minds. Why? Because they're ultimately God's truths. They're not man's truths. This is huge, right? They're ultimately, he says, from one true shepherd, right? So we're to fill our deep well with these truths. And listen, truth, all right, wisdom is nonsense does nothing for you if you don't use it, right? I mean, some of us are the wisest fools, right? You, you, you study all day long, yet you find yourself just being somewhere in a striped t-shirt blowing your whistle the rest of your life. You don't, you don't do anything. It's easy to memorize stuff and know stuff, but when it actually affects your life and lays bare on your soul and your work and your marriage and your friendships, we don't want to go there. We just want to know a lot, recite it to others, and not ever walk in the truth that we've been given. So, so some of us, are you a wise fool? Do you do nothing with the truths that you hear? A lot of us know a lot of knowledge, but don't do anything with what's been given to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right, wisdom alone puffs up, leads to an arrogant self-righteousness. Who cares if you know all the books of the Bible and don't walk in it? Like, 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 I mean, who cares if, if you know what God says about sin, but you don't care about your sin? Who cares if you wear the referee t-shirt and call everybody else when your soul rots in your own house? I mean, he, he's getting at, man, these things are, should be firmly fixed in our own lives. These truths should be real for us. They should affect us. So verse 12, he's going to show, hey, to hear Ecclesiastes is to hear God's voice. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. Look, in the ancient Near East, royal libraries were, were, were normal. They were just packed full of books. You actually had philosophers come in. They come in and go, hey, actually, the, the overabundance of information is more of a hindrance than helpful. Isn't that interesting? Um, I think we all could understand this. You Google search overload of information, you know it's hit over 16 million times. That Google search alone. People are inundated. Now we got, now we got you know, uh, data through the computer, through internet. Through, I mean, we are overloaded with information. This is why I say it's the danger of discipleship on the internet. So many people are just, just internet discipled. They hear one sermon from some guy, some random place, and they're speaking to a specific congregation, and they think, oh, that's how I live my life. We all need to shift to this and do this. And stop being an internet disciple. Be God disciple through Jesus. Right? Go to his word. He goes, hey, there's one book from one shepherd with one voice. You've got to make your aim. If you master any book, you master the Bible. If you know any truths, you know the truths of the Bible. Listen, this is not saying we don't study godly men and godly women that are given to the church for us to grow up in godliness. But listen, I say this all the time in great love and grace. Your most revered pastor, teacher, professor, friend is not the Bible. Like, their books are awesome, but always remember that they're not Scripture. 
They're not inspired. They're fallible, not infallible. I say these sermons, right? I'm, I'm a fallible man with an infallible word. So we pray that God holds us on to the truth and makes us forget and leave the things that we should not hear. So, so here's my question. Are you like Solomon's warning? Go, man, I just, I read books all the time, even good Christian books, but I never read the scriptures. Is your devotional life some author? Or is it God? First. And then, yes, praise God, we're all about education and reading and learning. And I, I quote people all the time because I'm reading them. But, but listen, if you're like me, don't you have a growing list? Because Solomon's saying there's no end to the writing of books outside the Bible. And studying even 1% of that is enough to wear you out. I mean, I got a growing list, right? Anybody else have a list? I have a list of books that are like, I'd try to read by Friday and then maybe next year and then maybe before I die. Like, like I just, it just continues to grow and then they just keep getting added to the list. And the temptation is to just go after those sources and ignore Solomon saying, don't go beyond this though. Stay here. Have the truth firmly fixed that informs you as you read other authors, read other preachers and pastors. Does that, does that line up with what this is saying? Is he saying what, what I'm reading in here? I told you that was my conversion experience. When I opened up my Bible in college, read through the whole scriptures because I was so confused by the chaos of what I was hearing everybody say on the Christian landscape. I said, God, I want you to say what you believe is true. Listen, I can't make it a day without the truth. And I don't mean a good Christian book. I mean face in here. All right? That's what I mean. And listen, my house, my house, we, we have some candor in our house now. And I've told some of you this, that when, when one of us is off, Kristen or I is off, like there's green light to just say, babe, uh, you have not been with Jesus today. Like seriously, you have not been in the Bible. It's actually just transparent. It happened yesterday, right? I, I just was having an off day. And, and my, Kristen is in the kitchen. She goes, do you, need, do you need to go read, get with Jesus, go in your room, shut the door, read your Bible, and then come back out and we'll talk. Right? And I was like, okay, cool. Right? And I did that. It was, a much, it was a much better day. So listen, you can't go a day without the truth. And listen, you might think you can, and that's the deceptive nature of sin and folly, that you find yourself walking down a path where you think you don't need it, and you've got life figured out, you've got your marriage figured out, you've got friendships figured out, you've got your own sin figured out. I can train it last week. I don't need to put it to death. I can keep it around for comfort. And, and God's saying, no, keep these things firmly fixed. So get other brothers and sisters around you that will point you to the truth and share the truth with you and encourage you. And let me just encourage you with this. If, if you have no idea where to start or what to do, Ask. Ask somebody. There's nothing shameful about that. And I love that many of you are. So want to cultivate that culture, man, just ask. Man, if you're like, I don't know where to start, I don't know how to read, I don't know how to interpret, then just ask. Ask a pastor. Ask another saint in this room who you know loves their Bible and is trusted. Right? Don't ask down the street corner with, you know, just random. Okay, don't just go out there like Googling. Ask us for information and resource. So here Solomon is reminding us, man, are you seeking spiritual truth? And if so, where are you going for it? He's saying, I've been giving you the very words of God. So our quest is ended when we go straight to the source and surrender ourselves to the God of all knowledge, right? Um, be careful to be the person Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3. Uh, you're always learning but failing to ever arrive to a knowledge of the truth. 
You just hear sermon after sermon, but you're not arriving to truth that's transformative. So Solomon says, don't accept anything less or demand anything more than this. And here's the comfort in this, guys. There is a green light for you to not have every last theological apologetic thought figured out before coming to Jesus. Okay? That's my story. That's many people's story. Listen, what I did know is that I was a sinner. I knew I was deserving of wrath, deserving of hell, deserving of just judgment. I knew God was holy. I knew Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation. He was the one who did it for me in my place, in my stead, for my sin. I knew that he alone could give me righteousness necessary to be made one with God, to be reconciled to God. But listen, I did not have the Trinity figured out. Like, I didn't have the days of creation figured out. I didn't have a lot of apologetic questions. I didn't have all the apparent contradictions in Scripture figured out. And I just started walking. But man, I knew Jesus Christ was real. I knew he was my Savior. I knew he could save me from my sin. I knew nothing else could atone or merit or expiate or fulfill that. So man, I'm going to go with Jesus. And then Jesus is going to continue to teach me his truth. So listen, don't, don't feel like you have to have the whole world figured out before you come to Jesus. If you know those key realities, and I, I emphasize key, and he says, yes, you're my son, but you're also my servant, that, that he's my Lord, not just my fire insurance. Okay, if we get all that, welcome to the kingdom. Now let's walk. Let's continue to figure this out together. There's mercy and grace there. There's stumbling paths that people are on, but some of you guys have even talked to you, man. You, we're talking about, I mean, the historicity of Haggai. I'm going, okay, that's good, that's cool, but what do you think about Jesus? Okay, let's start there. He's the center of the scriptures. Now listen, if you get him, then we can work our way out. You know what's awesome is God continued to affirm his truth over and over and over. I've learned over time you never have to fear the truth. You never have to fear what's going to be dug up in archaeology. I've shared a lot of my trip to Israel when I was there. And uh, for a number of years, up until the mid-1900s, uh, a lot of people even abandoned the faith because Pontius Pilate, uh, the name that was central to the crucifixion of Jesus, couldn't find really recollection of him anywhere. So everybody before that are like, I don't know, we haven't dug anything up in Caesarea, couldn't find anything. I'm in Caesarea. I'm doing that whole trip a couple years ago. And I remember they found in the mid-1900s a stone bigger than life, that had Pontius Pilate's name. They put it in the museum, and everyone's going, oh, my goodness. Here's the thing. What do you do before the mid-1900s as a Christian? Throw in the towel because we haven't found a name? We don't have to fear it. You don't have to fear what people will dig up. It's only going to continue to give us our solidarity in the truth. So let me ask a question before we move into his final statement. Because this is what he's getting at. If, if someone came up to you and asked you, what's the meaning of life? What would you say? How would you answer him? Someone at work, your neighbor. Mike, what's, what's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What's my purpose? For some of you, you're going, man, that's a little overwhelming, right? I mean, where do I start? I mean, I gotta, I gotta live next to them for the next 10 years. I gotta work next to their cubicle for the next foreseeable future. What do I say? How do I? And we've all got different answers, right? Culture's got all different answers. 
as you think about it, most people say, well, the meaning of life is do what makes you happy, right? Okay. Other people will say, uh, life is what you make of it. No matter what hand you're dealt, just look to the positive end. Just be optimistic. Other people say, I don't know, most have a different answer, so just kind of find the one that works for you. Heard that one? Choose your religion. Choose your belief system that just fits well with you. Here's the thing. All of our answers, all of cultural's answers, all of the world's answers are self-centered, self-seeking, self-identifying. Here's the problem. Guess what? When you make yourself the center, you become miserable. So what happens is we form a God who says, hey, um, God is to meet all my desires instead of life was built to say yes to all of God's desires. You track it? So, so life was wired in such a way to where creator God gives us life, breathes life into our lungs from the dust of the ground, and we're meant to know him, be known by him, and worship him. We find our fullness of life, our fullness of joy in living for his name and renown, primarily seen in the face of Jesus Christ, right? Okay, that, that's meaning, but the self-centered way of culture and all of our answers are predominantly self-seeking. And when you put yourself in the center of why you believe life exists, to make me happy, to make me fulfilled, to make me whole, to make me kind of, you know, operate in this, okay, it's going to end up in misery. God wants to get you out of your self-centered solar system into God's solar system that is Jesus as the sun, S-U-N. And all the planets in your life orbit around him and you find meaning and rightness and fulfillment and satisfaction in him. And so in this question, here's what Solomon will say. You were made to serve someone else. You were made to, serve, to worship someone else. You were made to honor someone else. Verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. <laughs> Someone's summing it up. Hey, I've said it all. I've laid it all out there. You've got 12 chapters. I could have said more, but I held myself back. So you can continue to read this. He goes, some of you thought the scene would make life better. Partying would make life better. Man, you read about my parties. They were epic. Every Hollywood star was there. Every band was playing live at my estate. I mean, you guys thought that, that sex would, would satisfy you with multiple spouses. I had 700 wives. I had 300 hookers at my house. You want to talk about satisfaction? I realized that didn't do it either. Some of you guys thought that, man, work, finding meaning and making your mark in this life and being wealthy. I was the wealthiest man who ever lived, period. Some of you guys thought that just having wisdom, just knowing a lot, being intellectual would do it. Man, I knew more than anybody else in my intellectual nature. I was the wisest man second to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself will say in Matthew. So I did it. I tried it. Check it out. Guess what? It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. You can chase it all you want. You're still going to hit the brick wall or hit the ceiling. Never get beyond that. Your life will ultimately be despair. They're empty gods. And then he says, here's my conclusion. Fear God and keep his commands. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon says, if you come up to me and you ask me, what's the meaning of life? Fear God and keep his commands. Now, here's, here's why. He says, this is your telos. This is your goal. 
This is your purpose. This is where life is found. This is where meaning is found. This is where substance is acquired. This is where you break through the brick wall, you break through the ceiling into uncharted territory that you never knew existed before. Here's why he says this. We live in a day where God is love. God is love. God is love. God is only love. So you know what happens is God becomes a spineless, tolerant Easter bunny that goes around playing his guitar saying, I'm cool with everything. We're all good. We're good. We're good. You good. You good. You good. Yeah, you, you cool with that? I'm cool with that. Yeah. I mean, we just slither them into our compartments, our camps. Listen, absolutely God is Father, absolutely, God is dad. Our hearts cry, ah, but he is so good to us as his kids, as his children. Yes, he gives us delight. Yes, he is merciful and gracious in all of these things. But the result of that alone is very little fear of God. He is also creator. He's also judge. He's also infinitely holy, infinite perfections. He is absolutely full in everything that is. And so what happens is you now have a God with no justice, no wrath, no no consequence, surely no hell, surely no justice, will surely not send anybody from his presence because you have no fear of his name, you have no right understanding of the God of creation, so you think he forms how you want him, he says yes to all your desires instead of you saying yes to his desires, realizing that's the way where life is found. So now our whole bag is mixed up and he says when you realize you fear God, it's the beginning of knowledge, right? You can actually read later in Proverbs 29, Solomon writes that as well where he says, hey, if you don't fear God, God and you just believe in man and fear man, there's a trap set for you that you're going to step in. Like, like if you fear culture more than him, if you fear what the government says about legislation more than him, because that's a trap you're going to step in and you're going to find yourself wanting. You're going to find yourself hurt. To fear God is to live with a constant belief that he sees all, knows all, and will give an account for everything. That's what Solomon says. So here's the question. Here's what's great. The question is not, friends, do you fear? Because all of us fear somebody. The question is, who are you going to fear? None of us are out, outside of that. Some of us, you just fear people. You fear culture. So you do whatever culture says is right. You go along with what everybody else says. Some of you, you, you fear your boss at work. You fear your friends. You fear your family. And I mean in the sense of truth. I mean in the sense of finding life and understanding the way that life was placed to work. If you don't fear God, if you don't fear the Lord, you will always fear something else in place of Him. Always. Always. Solomon is showing us that fear of the Lord keeps you safe. So let me ask you a difficult question. And I had to ask myself this. Very simple. Who do you fear? Who do you fear? Who do you have to have the approval of? You have to. For your, for your solar system to operate well and for your life to be at ease, who do you have to have the approval of? 
Whose praise to you means the world? If that person would just praise me, my life would be satisfied. And whose disapproval of you brings you to ruin? Whose rejection of you brings you to ruin? Take some honest stock in your soul asking these questions. You'll start to see who that is. You'll start to see that it's not the Lord. It's not God who you're fearing. Which person do you find yourself adjusting yourself around? Right? So, that, so then I can live the way that I meet their requirements, I meet their expectations. And you kind of conform your whole life as to how they want you to live instead of how God wants you to live. Here's the irony. Here's the crazy thing, man. There's no option. Like, it, it doesn't even make sense. Like, fear God or fear puny humans. Like, it just, there's no rational decision. Like, there's no decision to be made. We either fear the God who makes all things. Solomon says, you're going to stand before and give an account. Your whole life's going to be laid bare in the sense of he knows every thought, every deed, will judge you accordingly. Man, either you're going to fear this God or you're going to fear the human next door, the human that sits in the chair, the person who doesn't like you, the person who feels like they have to lay over you their authority. Man, we want to fear the one who has ultimate authority, who says this is how life is wired and made. That will lead us to a fear of his commands, realizing, we'll see in a minute, when you can't keep his commands, he has someone who can. So who do you fear? I mean, it starts with the fear of God. It starts with fearing him and all that he is. Not letting go of him being father and dad and gracious and kind, but also not letting go of his fury towards sin and his right justice and holiness and his absolute freedom to do whatever he wants. Who, I mean, I wonder what God you even have in your head as you read the Bible. What does he look like? What is he made of? So here he shows us this. The fear of God starts with going, man, God, what do you say? What do you want for my life? I thought of Romans 12. Man, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you might know what his will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. So the will is always, the question is always, God, what do you want for my life? What do you want in this situation? What do you want in my marriage? What do you want in my work? Like, what do, what do you want? Not what everybody else wants, not what everybody else's opinion is, but what do you solely want? I'm here to please you. Paul says in Galatians 1 that you're not a servant of Jesus if you try to please man too, so you can't have two masters. So so pick one, but the options are easy. We fear him. We love him. And he says it's interesting because we'll do things and think, well, I can hide this from God. He goes, that's an urban legend. That's a myth. You can't hide anything from his sight. I mean, anybody else find it mildly horrifying that God sees everything? I mean, just, just, I mean even what you did yesterday in your car? With no one around, what you said, what you thought. I mean, anybody else find that mildly horrifying? That you guys all walk in here as, I don't know, straight lace. Hi, Pastor Mike. I always say that, right? We're fighting on the way to church, arguing. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hey, guys. How are we doing? Cup of coffee. Thank you. Life's been great. Morning's beautiful. It's so sunny out. Then you get home, get in the car. We're going to talk about this, right? It's just the way we live. And God's, I see, yeah, pastor might not see that. Friends not, might not see that. Saints might not see that. Get home, it's just a train wreck. 
Kids are screaming, hungry, burping, pooping, can't help anything. Wife's screaming, frantic, you want to go out, do something else. I had this set up for my day. You're interfering with this. Pastor Mike sent another email. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you just, you, God sees it all. God sees it all. So here's the question. Um, The question will always be, guys, is God God in your life? Because the answer to almost every single counseling situation I've ever encountered is that God is not God. Something else is in their proverbial universe. So either work is God, your spouse is God, your neighbor is God, your image is God, your career is God, your contentment is God, comfort is God. You're going to find strain every time God is not God. Every time you hear this question, Solomon says this is what man was created for, to understand that God made us to worship him and find life in his commands, not to burden you, but to free you. Listen to what Michael Eaton summarizes. In this, he says this, the fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, it's also the beginning of joy of contentment, of an energetic and purposeful life. The preacher wishes to deliver us from a rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and human justice or integrity. He wishes to drive us to see that God is there, that he is good and generous, and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling. Yeah, amen. Right, this is, this is what Solomon has been saying. Michael summarizes it so beautifully. Man, you have to understand the commands of Scripture, every time you read them, are God lining you up to operate the way the universe was desired and basically wound up to be. Every time you step out of that, you're, happy, you're stepping into fracture. You're stopping fearing God. You forget that you can't keep his commands because he's holy. You're broken. You're sinful. It leads you to, hey, I can't keep these commands. God provided a way in Jesus who can. He fulfills the commands of God to now allow me to walk in the commands and see that they're life-giving and not enslaving. So when God comes to us and says in every subject and arena of life, this is how marriage union is to be, we don't rail against that and say, well, he doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand the the DNA makeup. He doesn't. Listen, um, God made marriage. God created you. Right? We, we come in with sex and he puts it in the framework of marriage, man and woman, husband and wife. And we rail against that and go, well, it shouldn't be that. I want my desires. I deserve this. I was made this way. I should have this. And he just says, hold on a second. It was his idea. It was his gift. He made it. You didn't make sex. You didn't think it up. You weren't dabbling one day and go, man, you know what would be really nice and fulfilling and satisfying? Sex. Like, nobody said that. It was God's design, God's idea, and us and our arrogance. And self-sufficiency that is not sufficient at all, that is a lie. Belief that somehow we can wire the world the way it's supposed to be. And God's going, man, when you step outside of my command, you step in error. You step into destruction. He's saying this is a beautiful thing. The commands of God are not about taking from you what's rightfully yours. You have nothing that's rightfully yours. He owns it all. It's about him lining you up to walk in the goodness of the gift that it is that he gave. So as you study your Bible, one of the beautiful things you'll start to see 
is that God knows how humanity works. That's a really beautiful thing. And I always say the commands of God, when you become a Christian, no longer terrify, they taste sweet like honey, David says. Listen, obedience to God is a happy road for the Christian. It's a delightful road because it's goads that protect you. Guys, the, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters. It's actually that every bit matters because every bit of what you do will be seen in the final judgment. Every bit of what you think, the bit of what you say. Because if there is no God, there is no judge. If there is no judge, there's no final judgment. If there's no final judgment, there is no true meaning to life. Because otherwise, all you have is God not judging human experience or existence, and you have a life that is pointless litigation that ends in meaningless despair. Ecclesiastes is teaching us how little joy there is when you try to push the Creator out of His own universe. That's what He's trying to teach you. That's what He's trying to teach us. When you try to push the Creator out of what He has made, there's little joy there. That's why you're shaking your fist at the heavens. That's why you're bitter. That's why you're angry. Because you're actually trying to push the Creator out of what He has invited you into. If all this is true, I'll end with this. What matters then is the decision that we make about Jesus Christ. It's the most important decision we'll make in our life, right? If this is true, final judgment, seen and unseen, commission, omission, if this is the reality, Ecclesiastes ends actually with a warning, but one that beautifully points you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is a God who brings everything to judgment. So if that's true, it's necessary that we will be justified on that great day and vindicated from his right justice, right? And so we have Jesus Christ who enters the vanity of this world, suffers its futility, and doesn't stop there. He does more, right? He, he takes the judgment. He takes the wrath. He takes the holy requirement. He lives, walks, breathes, does all of that for us. It says he literally becomes our sin for us so we can become his righteous life. And he goes into the dust of the ground, killed, buried, rises, vindicating futility, vanity, meaning in himself. So now life is found not from a person, but in a person. So now your life is found in Christ. When you become a Christian, that's why the scriptures say you are one with him. There's this union. The theological you know, teachers will explain it as this union with Christ. We actually become one with him. We're, we're hidden in him. Right now, on the day of judgment, when we all want a champion, you're either found naked or you're found with him. 
And he steps in our place and says, I did this for Mike, for Sarah, for John, for Chris. I will vindicate the justice necessary, the judgment that's coming, the hell, the fury, the consequence that you tried to live and make your universe about you, the idolatry that ensued from Genesis 3 that trickles down through every last human DNA strand that awakens you when you come out the birth canal. Everybody has to decide what they will do with Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can save you from the vanity and futility of life. And for some of us, he has. So you're no, no longer walk blind, but seeing. No longer deaf, but hearing. No longer lame, but healed. No longer dead, but alive. Has that happened to you? Here's the beautiful reality. Acts 17 says this. It says that God has appointed a time when the whole world will be judged and one man to do it, that man's Jesus Christ. Right? Here's what's great. Read the Gospel of John 5. It says that when that day comes, those who have fallen into their loving arms of their Savior, Jesus Christ, will not go into judgment, but pass from death unto life. It's those of us that have Jesus, the source of meaning, the source of life, will not go into judgment, will not suffer the right consequence for our sin, but will pass from death to life now and in the future. And he will stand as your champion. And this is why the commands of God are beautiful. Because they're revealed, not only do they lead to life now, abiding in what God says, they also lead you to life when you realize you can't, and he still celebrates his son in you. The commands work in this dual way. The message of Ecclesiastes is that the victory of Jesus will finally and fully, friends, save us from the vanity of sin. Let's ask God to help us to be there. Lord, would you help us in this moment? Lord, I know there are hearts all over the place in this room. There are experiences. There is baggage. There is understanding. There is misunderstanding. God, would you right now make clear absolutely what you need to make clear? God, would you help hearts? Help our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus, the meaning of Jesus, the life of Jesus as the only remedy to the vanity of life. Would you help us to have a desire for you, to see your commands as sweet and not terrifying, to see them as good, as wise goads that prod us towards the goodness of God and protect us from spiritual destruction. God, my fear is that we would just leave this room and not take honest stock where we're at, God, would you help us to do that right now? Would you help us to examine our hearts? Examine where God is not God in our life. Examine what we might be fearing in place of you. Examining what commands we might see as burdensome when really they're freedom. Maybe sin that needs to be repented of. And that we turn to you gladly because you paid for that sin. Some of us living as though, God, you don't see what we do, that we somehow have hidden things from your sight. Might that be a beautifully horrifying reality? That, God, one day we will be there anyways. So might we do business with you now? 
Might we repent of sin now? Might we turn to Christ now? God, would you save some now? Would some repent of sin and turn to Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, as their King? And God, as we observe your supper, might we enjoy you being the source of life that frees us finally and fully from the vanity of sin. That it was only your broken body and your shed blood and your victorious risen life that can do that. Might we be nourished by that reality today. Might we lean harder into you as a people than we did yesterday. Because of this work you've accomplished in Jesus' name, amen.